Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How's your Thanksgiving? It was good. I can't complain. I, I'm still recovering from West Coast time lapse, as is my uh, toddler, uh, which is probably a much, much more daunting prospect, unfortunately. But how about, how about you all? Were you at home or you were traveling? Uh, I had COVID for the third time, so I was banished. Oh, no. Oh, no. The third time? You can get it three times. Uh-huh. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I think you deserve a prize at some point. Yeah, that has to be some kind of a record. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I hope I, I hope not, and I hope, <laughs> I hope that people get it less than that. But, yeah, uh, it felt like a booster shot. Oh, it's a little more mild. That's good. At least it doesn't catch up with you the full balance. Yeah, so now I'm like, oh, I don't need a booster shot. Pretty, there you have enough natural immunity now with uh, everything coursing through your veins. At least for a week. At least for a week. Well, the next variant shows up. I'm assuming that you punched through the wall like Kool-Aid Man as you came in with your new natural found immunity and strength. <laughs> uh, kind of superpowered bullets are glanc- bouncing off in all directions at this point. Because uh, three times in, I feel like that is that is really something monumental. I know some folks who've gotten it first time in the last week or two. And it's Nuh-uh. been like a lot of social media kvetching. And I'm like, I get it. It's bad. It's terrible. But we've all been there at this point. I am unscathed. Whoa. What have you been doing? You think? Uh, nothing, apparently. Yeah, no, I, I, at this point, I'm pretty sure that I had it and, and it was asymptomatic or something because it, it just feels impossible. Every other person I know has been sick. You do live. You do live in a bubble, not just people who think Quinta is in a social media bubble. Oh no, it doesn't stop there. It is an actual cage. physical bubble. Yeah. Exactly. Rolls into the office. We push her downhill back home. <laughs> it's very convenient. You can come up and cough in my face. And <laughs> oh no, no, no! Don't ask for that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security 2.0. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I'm here with one of my two other co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. Uh, sadly, we are without our other co-host, Alan Rosenstein. We are, for the second week in a row, just two wheels of a tricycle, sadly dragging the third spoke behind us, making a racket and dragging sparks uh, as we try and move forward. But we're lucky to be joined by two wonderful training wheels rounding out our set. What a horrible metaphor. That was really nice. That was a good metaphor. I thought that's pretty good. I have a toddler at home. It comes up a lot, these sorts of things. Uh, but we're thrilled to be joined by the two hosts of the Carnegie Council's Doorstep podcast, Nick Gvozdev and Tatiana Serafin. Nick and Tatiana, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. So excited. It's going to be so much fun. Alan and I uh, had the honor of appearing on the Doorstep podcast a week or two ago, I think right after the election results. We had a lot of juicy, juicy things to talk about. But this week has not spared us juicy things to talk about because in spite of the short holiday week, we have had a number of major news developments in the national security, international affairs space that we like to live in here at Rational Security. And we are thrilled to have both of you here for what we are calling the Doorstep Edition in honor of our two guests. Topic one for this week, paper rock sensors. 
China has erupted in protest against Xi Jinping's draconian zero-COVID policies, with thousands of Chinese citizens holding up a blank white sheet of paper as a sign of their discontent. Will these white paper protests make a difference in China? How should the United States respond? Topic two. A Cheney might shoot you in the face, but they'll never stab you in the back. Last week, the Washington Post reported that more than a dozen current and past staffers on the January 6th committee are angry with co-chair Liz Cheney for decisions to focus the committee's final report on conduct related to former President Trump instead of other issues the committee was looking at within its mandate. Is there merit to these complaints or do they seem overblown? And topic three, much Guaido about nothing? Question mark. The Biden administration is easing sanctions on Venezuela as talks loom between the incumbent Maduro regime and recognized government in exile of opposition leader Juan Guaido. Does this signal a major shift in U.S. policy towards Venezuela, or are those condemning the move overblowing the situation? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. Absolutely. So... As listeners have probably seen, there have been some pretty incredible protests in China over the last week or so following a devastating fire in um, Urumqi, which is the capital of the Xinjiang region. Uh, A number of people died, and there were initial reports that that may have been connected to draconian COVID restrictions that prevented people from leaving, had restrictions on people's ability to get outside. I think my sense is that it's actually not clear to what extent the zero COVID policy contributed to the deaths and the fire, but regardless... The tragedy sparked protests first on the streets of Urumqi and then around China. The New York Times has a really striking map that shows how there are protests popping up all around China. Um, And initially, you know, some of the protests were sort of focused on specifically on these lockdowns. So because of the efforts to obtain zero COVID, China has been really, really focused on just keeping people isolated. Um, And there's been a lot of reporting about how that's taken a real toll, uh, particularly on residents of urban areas, you know, for who haven't been able to go out and get food, for example. Uh, But there's also been some really astonishing footage of protesters in some cases directly calling for the fall of the Chinese Communist Party, calling for Xi Jinping to step down. James Palmer in Foreign Policy uh, has a article arguing that this is essentially the largest wave of popular protest, this is a quote, since student-led demonstrations in 1989. So of course, that's what led up to Tiananmen Square. And there's some really interesting reporting about how, you know, this is a lot of people, many young people who are engaging these protests who don't know about Tiananmen because of the censorship. And so there's this sort of new protest moving movement that echoes Tiananmen and yet is is blossoming in sort of an absence of information about it. I think the the scenes on social media have been really striking and terrifying and inspiring. We can talk about the particular tactics some of the protesters have been using to get around censorship, which I think is really interesting. But my first question is just, you know, where where do we think this is going. Uh, is this? Are we headed for a government crackdown? I think it's probably too much too soon to say that this is going to to lead to uh, serious changes in the Xi government. But I don't know, Nick and Tatiana. I'm curious for your thoughts. Well, one of the most striking things um, about these protests is how much they're being led by, as you mentioned, young people, Gen Z, who may not know about. Tiananmen Square or or the whitewashed history, but who do know that their economic opportunity is not what it used to be. 
who know that um, their education is being thwarted um, by lockdowns, who aren't able to engage the way they were able to engage on social media and meeting people and just living their lives before the pandemic. Um, and these young people are the ones out there. They're the people that you see in the videos and they are the ones that globally, so I, I look at the globe and I really am inspired by Gen Z around the world. And I think that it is the same thing in China. Uh, and they are looking at a life that is not going to be the same as their parents, right? Who experienced this extreme explosion of economic opportunity, this, these great lifestyles, and they're not seeing the same for themselves. And they're fine. I think this may be the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of they're not afraid to stand up for what they believe in. And I'm really actually inspired by all the number of young people coming out saying, to your point, that it's not just about what happened in this province. It is about what is happening with the economy. It is, a pop, what it is directly impacting their quality of life. And they do not see the return on investment from this regime that they were promised. And so they're going to stand up and say, no, we want something different for our life. And, and that's what I really see the difference with, with young people coming out to protest. Because, you know, their skin in the game is their future. And, and they want a future that was promised to them that they're just not seeing, not only with the lockdowns, but with the unfortunate um, slowdown and complete shutdown of China's economy. We had a guest on the Doorstep podcast uh, last year, uh, Dr. Tia Tyree, who really pointed in her research to saying that this generational shift was going to lead to uh, increased protests around the world. And of course, this was before what happened in Iran, before what happened in China, and elsewhere. And some of this, and to, to build on what Tatiana said, what we're seeing in China, what we've seen in Iran, a lesser extent, uh, a muted protest movement in Russia, but is young people who do not have memories and are not encumbered by their elders by saying, well, it can get worse, or we remember, we better stick with what we know because the alternative could be worse. And it is linked to greater a degree of global information, the fact that the Chinese government has had to uh, attempt to censor broadcasts from the World Cup because of people asking questions about why, why are we not seeing zero uh, COVID policies being enacted uh, there, speaks to uh, people who have information and are more willing to act. What we don't know yet is the resilience of the Chinese regime, uh, just as in Iran, in Belarus, in Venezuela, elsewhere, uh, when protests have happened, how resilient is the regime in being able to contain? Can it offer compromises in certain areas? To what extent is it prepared to use force? And this gets us then to the question, it's not just Xi Jinping at the top. Then we start saying, well, what are local police, local security forces, uh, military? Uh, and then ultimately, too, let's not forget, what are the parents saying uh, to their children when they come back from a day of protesting? So I, I think that the jury is out in terms of what type of response we will see. And certainly for Xi Jinping, uh, the memory of Tiananmen Square uh, is, is looming in, I think, his own personal calculus, uh, just as we've seen in Iran, the memory of what happened in 1978 and 79 and how regimes fall uh, is very much uh, in the minds of leaderships. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. And I think there are two more factors kind of that weigh in here that are worth flagging. One is that not just the Gen Z distinction. So I think my understanding of Gen Z has been kind of at the front edge of this campaign. There's, there is a kind of 
beginnings of multi-generational elements of it uh, and that they may grow further. I mean, that's what we've seen in Iran where we saw an initially kind of youthful protest movement really become multi-generational pretty fast in part because people's children that are being harmed and targeted um, by the regime. And I, I suspect we might see something here as well if we see a sharp turn to particularly violent forms of repression um, by the regime, which we've seen in Hong Kong and other contexts. And that had then went forward and amplified the protest movement there. Uh, Jordan Snyder had a really good uh, episode of the China Talk podcast, A Friend of Lawfare, that that got into this. I thought he, he read actually an essay he wrote, I can't remember where, on this that made that point. I think it was a very astute one. But this is the first generation that's really felt that hard edge of authoritarian rule in China in a long time, not just Gen Z, but really like going all the way to Gen Xers' parents, essentially, at this point. Um, you had discrete minorities. A lot of people certainly felt the sharp edge of authoritarianism in China over the last several decades, but not the majority of people, not the kind of dominant cultural economic class. And now everyone's getting it, except for the true party elites, because of this no zero COVID policy. And then you also have the fact that zero COVID is uniquely associated with Xi Jinping, right? We saw at the 20th Party Congress that took place just a few months ago, him really talk about zero COVID, make clear that it was part of the party's platform, and then perhaps most importantly, appointed as his deputy, the party chief of Shanghai, a close ally of his, who is one of the people most closely associated with some of the excesses of zero COVID and some of the negative consequences. We heard from Julian Ku on this podcast and Sophia Yan and others on the Lawfare podcast about how the widely kind of perceived message of those appointments was that zero COVID was here to stay. We even saw global markets react to that uh, in part as a as a after that that Congress, precisely because it was understood that China's zero COVID policy was a reflection of Xi Jinping and what he was intent on doing. So this is a much more direct personal threat to his rule. It's hard for him to say, oh, these are some excesses. I can change tack and adjust my policy here because it's so personally associated with him. And he just doubled down on it in the biggest, most public legacy affirming event of probably his life and his duration and rule, certainly in recent memory. So I do think it's a much more pointed crisis than other protest movements that we may have seen that have certain similar dynamics. I will say one thing I've found really interesting about this, to your your point, Scott, and riffing on Jordan's point that this is sort of a generation that is en masse feeling for the first time the power of what the Chinese state can do when it really puts his mind to it. There was a lot of conversation early on during uh, COVID, you know, during the really, really early days when there were lockdowns of various degrees of stringency across the world of uh, people arguing that this was an example of sort of, you know, Foucauldian biopower, right? The state's power over life and death, that the the ultimate example of what it means to be a state is dictating, you know, the movement of bodies and the the ability to sort of turn people into you know, biological functions. Um, I'm thinking here, if I can nerd out a little bit of the Italian philosopher, uh, Giorgio Agamben, who I think then completely lost the plot and started arguing that Italy's, you know, in my mind, very reasonable efforts to keep people alive constituted, uh, you know, Carl Schmidt style state of exception because, you know, they they wouldn't let him go visit his friend's house or something like that. And I think that that was silly and an example of how this kind of thinking can- And you know, extremely Italian. Oh, I mean, it's it gone been, I mean, it's, you know, it's real chef's kiss stuff, I say right? I love Italians, but extremely oh, 100%, Italian. Oh, 100%. It. But I actually think that, you know, that rhetoric was totally misguided when it came to the vast majority of what governments were doing. I think this is actually- the the Chinese zero COVID is maybe actually a really good example of like what that looks like when it actually manifests, which is 
as you say, Scott, you know, we obviously, you know, this is a, a generation, particularly of Han Chinese people who have not seen sort of really the the long arm of the state oppressing them personally so much, even as the state has been quite brutal, for example, in uh, its treatment of uh, the Uyghur population in, in Xinjiang, the region of which Urumqi is the capital. And yet now in this effort to sort of, you know, regulate life and death, right, uh, prevent COVID, now it's being manifest on the population as a whole. So which is, I think, both a rebuttal to <laughs> the Agambans of the world who saw this in the, I think, comparatively quite anodyne policies of a democratic Italian government, but also a demonstration of, you know, how people can react when they suddenly see how brutal the state can be in their lives. But, you know, when to your point about the Huns not feeling this, I mean, we are also seeing this extending not just in China, but also in the U.S. So let's look at, you know, what happened here in New York City at Columbia. There were protests like this is also impacting us here in in the U.S., um, the, you know, both Chinese Americans and Chinese studying here. And, and I think that the difference now between some of the examples that we're citing or, you know, or historical examples is the fact that, as Nick mentioned, there's this information flow that's coming, even with censorship. You know, people are taking screenshots and still posting them on WeChat. VPNs are amazing. I mean, there is still a way to get information out that was just not possible, you know, 20 years ago, right? You know, or in 1988, 1989. And, and I think this is what's going to make the difference because that information can then get to family here in the States or in Paris or in Italy, right? And and it can spur that maybe, and I don't know what you think, but will it spur the U.S. to act differently or to say something different? Um, you know, that is even more of my concern, that the U.S. just does nothing and just says, oh, well, it's your problem, it's your internal problem, precisely because we just seemed to have some sort of a love fest between Biden and Xi, you know, at the summit, and, and some sort of rapprochement to say, okay, we're now going to cooperate on climate. We're going to cooperate on the economy. And, and so I wonder, you know, what you guys think about the U.S. not saying more. I, I've actually been curious about that. And Scott, I, I wanted to get your thoughts because it seemed to me that, you know, by staying quiet, perhaps the Biden administration is denying she and the CCP the ability to argue that, you know, this is all the fault of outside agitators, in, in the way that you often see authoritarian governments do when the, the U.S. steps in. Scott, what do you think? You know, that's an argument that we see come up in a variety of other contexts. We actually saw the Biden administration pretty expressly reject it in the Iran context, comparing it to the Green Revolution of 10 years ago or so uh, in Iran and saying, hey, look, you know, at that time, the Obama administration was completely quiet because they were worried about this. But we don't think that actually made a difference. Uh, and this time we're willing to speak out more about it in regard to Iran. But we're seeing a little bit of a more cautious approach in regard to China. I think there are a variety of reasons for this. Um, one, like China just intersects a lot differently with a lot of U.S. interests. China and particularly Xi Jinping playing a really central role in regard to the Ukraine conflict. We know that uh, in part because of media reporting came out this week, underscoring the fact that he's really been the back channel with the Russians, between the Russians and the United States in important ways, and has helped serve as a counterweight to Russia in certain ways, even as not entirely getting on board with limiting it, uh, limiting Russian actions as much as the United States would like. And that's a continuing ongoing debate. Plus, on top of that, you have Taiwan, you have a variety of other, you know, 
issues arising in the South China Sea. You have variety of export controls that are meant to kind of limit China's technological growth, particularly in the defense sector, economic competition, technology competition. There's a lot of issues here. And, you know, against all of those, the Biden administration has to weigh, well, what does it mean if we come out more vocally in support of this? I actually think it's really different than the Iran case, for example. Like in Iran, you come out in support of the protests yeah, maybe it facilitates a crackdown to some degree or not, but it doesn't fundamentally change your relationship with that governing regime because you're already extremely hostile to it. Not as hostile maybe as the Trump administration was, not as openly hostile, but the Biden administration is not friendly with the Iran regime. The Biden administration is not friendly with Xi Jinping, but they work with them and they feel like they have to work with them. And they could face real consequences in part because this is a protest movement that so drives at the very heart of his reputation, his legacy that he just has spent months and months building up to for the recent party Congress. I think the odds of him actually taking a lot of U.S. engagement with this as a very personal affront is actually really high. Um, and I think prudence is probably warranted in part because I'm not sure what the United States can do that actually would help things on the ground. The one thing they can do is guarantee that Chinese nationals here actually have freedom of speech and can engage in protests. They can help discourage U.S. technology companies from facilitating and playing along with the most draconian efforts to suppress digital communication, which they've not, they have been going along with those in China's case, and maybe the United States should push back on that. But those measures that really resonate much more with a fundamental principles of free speech strikes a much better angle than endorsing the protesters and taking on a direct confrontational position in regards to Xi Jinping, I think that's just a riskier move than uh, the Biden administration is likely to undertake at this moment, given the other policy equities in play. Nick, what do you think? I think I agree that the equities that are in play are diverse and intersecting and contradictory in some cases. So uh, we want to work with China on climate. We want to partially decouple, particularly in the technology sector. But something that the president said on the sidelines of his meeting with Xi and at the G20 summit, essentially, how do we compete with China without that competition becoming open clashes? How do we prevent it from uh, becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy that competing with China inevitably leads to conflict? And then, of course, the other difference between China and Iran, uh, and we just had the reports released this week on it, uh, is China is a nuclear power. Uh, smaller than the United States and Russia, but seeking to close that gap, that's a reality too. And and the fact that China may soon, by, by the end of the decade, be the third country in the world uh, that will have the power uh, to devastate the United States in a way that only right now Russia can do, is something where, as you said, prudence is warranted uh, when you're dealing with, uh, with a nuclear power. And when you are, and we've just also seen the Chinese along with the Turks, uh, on the oil question of Russia, saying we are not, we are concerned about the insurance question, which has been a very big uh, point that the United States has wanted uh, big consumers of Russian oil to go along with the cap and to go along with uh, with the embargo. So I agree with you that navigating this can be difficult, and, and it's very easy, and, and Tatsyani may have a, a different uh, perspective on this, but it's, it's very easy to make statements and U.S. politicians are very good at that, but it's harder to actually manage this relationship where, as, as you said, that there are these equities and these equities are serious because they touch on fundamental U.S. interests uh, that would affect us negatively if that relationship goes uh, completely sour. One last thought to follow up on uh, Scott's point about the role of American companies. I do think it's important to underline how American tech companies have been 
mostly hindering uh, the the protests, although some helping as well. So, of course, Apple, which I think is really the uh, example of uh, the company that sort of made the deal with the devil to have a presence in the Chinese market. There's been reporting about how uh, the most recent version of an update that came out for Chinese iPhones uh, disables AirDrop. Uh, which protesters had used to basically share messages with other people in the vicinity. That's what the function does. Um, and that it had been used during the Hong Kong protests earlier this year, and it is no longer available. Uh, so that, I think, is a great example of Apple really you know, selling its soul a bit, I would argue. In another example is, uh, you know, I, I really do think that for all the criticism that Twitter gets, and I love to criticize it as well, the protests have been a great example of just how powerful a tool it can be for following events that are developing in real time across the globe. There's been incredible footage that you can find, uh, people posting through VPNs and so on. But at the same time, uh, there's also been some reporting about how it seems like Chinese government-affiliated accounts uh, were essentially spamming hashtags with escort posts so that anybody searching for news of the protests would just be, it would be just drowned out and spam. And usually you would expect Twitter to weigh in on that quickly, but they haven't been able to because under Musk, they've substantially cut into exactly the teams that you would want to be engaging on this front. So just to kind of footstomp Scott's point here, I think there's an important role to to play. And so far, at least uh, American companies have been kind of falling down on the job. Well, talking about discontent overseas, let's talk about some discontent at home, perhaps a little too close to home here in Washington, D.C., in our nothing other than our nation's capital building, because we have gotten word via the Washington Post of some unrest and disagreement taking place within the January 6th committee. In an article this week, we heard from more than a dozen current and former staffers of the January 6th committee, although none of them were named, so all anonymous sources, indicating that there was a lot of discontent circulating in regards to co-chair Liz Cheney, putting on her blame for decisions being made by the committee to trim down the scope of the formal report the committee is preparing to publish just in the next several weeks, if not days. The committee itself had essentially four lines of effort, color-coded lines of effort. The gold line was focused on Donald Trump and those around him. Uh, that had several other lines, one focusing on financing, one focusing on kind of right-wing terrorist militia-related groups, domestic terrorist groups. Uh, another line focused on intelligence failures by the intelligence community and law enforcement. But it sounds like the report is primarily going to be that gold line product, things focusing on Donald Trump and those people immediately around him, and has cutting out a lot of the other material because it is seen as too technical or too dry or not as politically salient. And it has some staffers, among other things, accusing Representative Cheney of trying to use the report to launch a political career uh, instead of covering the full range of issues that was within the scope of its mandate. Quinta, let me start with you on this because I know you're a close observer of the January 6th committee. What do you make of these complaints? Is this a lot of kind of you know, belly itching happening uh, from folks that you would expect, to some extent, you would expect in any sort of bipartisan committee or endeavor that people aren't going to be necessarily be happy with the final product looks like? Um, or is there some real more merit behind some of these concerns that the committee needs to take on board? I was really struck by reading this reporting, mostly because so far the committee has been 
remarkably unanimous and sort of in accord with itself to an extent that has really astonished me. You know, the, the, there's been, you know, some small amounts of reporting around the edges about minor disagreements in strategy among committee members, but overall they've really been marching in lockstep. And so this reporting in the post struck me both because apparently there is a real substantive disagreement among the members of the committee and committee staff, and because staff were apparently upset about it enough to actually take that to the Washington Post and try to air it out. It does not surprise me. Um, I think it's been clear that we have been headed in this direction for a while. The committee obviously was working on a pretty broad remit with a really limited amount of time within which to conduct its its work. The clock is really running down, given that Republicans will control the House as of the new Congress in January. And so they started off with, as you said, Scott, these sort of like color-coded team names. They were looking into all these different things. That said, when they began their hearings over the summer, it was pretty clear that they were focused very, very tightly on Trump himself. And to their credit, they managed to reveal a lot of new information about Trump's involvement in efforts to overturn the election and what he was doing and saying on January 6th in the immediate run-up. So I do think that was a fruitful avenue of inquiry. But given that, it does not hugely surprise me to see that there is a push uh, reportedly coming from Cheney to really focus on that in the report as well. Now, I will say, you know, it it is also a reminder that for all that the committee has really been marching in lockstep, that it is a bipartisan panel, despite what uh, Kevin McCarthy likes to say. Uh, and that, you know, Cheney, as a Republican who wants to kind of rid her party of Donald Trump, has different political equities, different policy views than uh, the Democrats on the committee. Um, and so she has reasons to push for for focusing on on Trump. Um, and just in the same way as, you know, a congressional committee investigating something under normal circumstances, you might expect squabbles between Democrats and Republicans. I think that's in a way kind of what we're seeing here. And it's notable just because they've been so unified so far. One final point, I do think something that's important to keep in mind, and I believe Kyle Cheney of Politico, who's been doing really great coverage of the committee, uh, made this point on Twitter, that Benny Thompson, the committee chairman, has promised repeatedly that the committee is going to make available to the public all the uh, transcripts or as much as they can of the interviews that the committee has been conducting behind closed doors. And what that means is that even if the committee uh, report focuses on Trump, we will have access to the transcripts of those interviews where the committee was conducting uh, its investigation into, for example, law enforcement failures, which is one of the aspects that the Post report said staffers were worried would be left out. So it's not like it's going to you know, blink out of existence and all that work would be for naught. So I think that's important to keep in mind as we think through these issues. I'd like to jump in from a journalist perspective. You know, I am never a fan of anonymous sourcing, you know, in general. So student journalism students out there listening to this podcast, <laughs> always try to get a name to to your source. And the, you pointed that out, Kinta, that all the sources in this piece were anonymous and that not even one person went on the record. That makes me skeptical of the story and the agenda of the people saying something about Cheney and wondering what else they might be complaining about. Now, in any given uh, reporting or, or, or organization, you're always going to have quibbles with the boss, right? 
I mean, how many Twitter employees are unhappy with with, with Musk, right? So, so that part is to me sounds reasonable. Okay, you know, the boss is taking the 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 boss, right? Cheney, as per part of the organization, is taking this report in a direction that people don't agree with. You know, normal internal squabbling. Does that merit a story? I'm not. I'm not sure. So I, I you know, for me, you know, and I think um, Scott, you pointed this out. Is it a, a bunch of uh, nothing? And I, I'm kind of leaning in that direction. I'm thinking that. Or is this a bunch of disgruntled people who did a lot of work, who aren't happy with the edits on the piece? And to Cheney's point, is the focus on Trump the proper way to go to continue to elevate this story in the public consciousness? So part two of being a journalist is to try to get your audience to pay attention. And I actually don't think without Trump as the headliner on this report, anybody's going to pay attention to this report, much like the Mueller report. Um, I think that we have to take that into consideration when we're putting anything before a public who is two years out on this story. You know, it might be very fresh in the minds of legislators and in Washington, D.C., but let me tell you, on the streets of New York City, nobody's talking about it. You know, and let's, to keep it fresh, let's align it with this person, Trump, who just announced his candidacy, who just made headlines again with his questionable dinner guests at Mar-a-Lago, right? Let's keep this in the headlines by focusing on Trump and the role that he played in trying to overturn democracy. And I think people will still bite into that apple pie. That was a terrible analogy. But people will still pay attention um, to that. Will they pay attention to the failures of the FBI in investigating a extremist group? I, I said that on purpose, but but I don't think they will. I really don't. I think that, you know, we live in a society where people forget what they did three seconds ago. And we and to keep their attention, we have to make it real to them and make them not forget. And so in that sense, I think she's going down the right path. And I think that this story may have been a little bit misguided. I think that uh, Representative Cheney has her finger on the pulse of the doorstep a lot more than the anonymous staffers. When I read the story, some of it is is really inside baseball. You have staff members, and look, I understand they've spent a large part of the last two years working on this. They're invested in it. It's very clear to them a lot of these technical details, but it's not clear to average people who this is a two-year-old story. They're going to be looking at this. And, and, and one of the things where I think Cheney may be zeroing in on this is what happened in the Rhode Island 2nd Congressional District in the midterms. You had a moderate Republican in Alan Fung, very popular mayor, uh, former mayor of the city of Cranston, was leading in the polls in a state which is the most democratic state in the union by registration, was looking like he was going to win. Uh, he lost because voters, uh, the, the Seth Magaziner campaign, after realizing that Seth Magaziner himself was not really going to be the draw, said, do you want to have a representative in Congress, nice guy, knows the region, who is going to caucus with election deniers, who is going to caucus with people who question the validity of elections? And on election day, Fung's six-point lead was converted into a four-point victory uh, for Magaziner. I think Cheney is tapping in that a message that has resonated with Americans and not just with Democrats, but as we saw in the midterm with independents and with some Republicans is once you question the validity of elections, once you no longer have peaceful transitions of power, it's hard to put those guardrails back up. And so could Cheney be using this for a 
you know, a, she wants to launch a presidential campaign in 2024. I think that it, that's, it could happen, but that's incidental. I think she has focused in on the issue that will mobilize Americans, which is it's not, you know, it is the, when we say it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. And if you have now 20% or so of the American electorate saying winning at all costs is the only thing that matters, we're not going, if we run things, we're not going to certify elections. We'll come up with uh, new electors uh, if the existing electors uh, don't vote the way we want them to. That, that touches, I, I think, a nerve for a lot of Americans. And we saw, I mean, I think the other impact of this, Cheney having seen five years of investigations, the Mueller report, all sorts of hearings on technical details about alpha bank servers and real estate transactions, and it, it just got lost. The signal-to-noise ratio swallowed that up. So uh, again, I understand the pain of staffers who say, this was going to be my crowning moment. I was on the blue team or the red team, and now the gold team is going to get all of the attention. But I think uh, I actually think Cheney has put her finger on the one issue from this report that could have legs uh, and may have an influence in how the 2024 campaign unfolds. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's certainly something there, and it's true that the the committee has done in its public hearings, uh, I think, really astonishing work in telling a story that is gripping to uh, you know the average person who doesn't have time to uh, sit and catch up on on this all day. And they've certainly learned a lot about the demands of how you know how to hold people's attention in the aftermath of the Mueller report. I definitely think that, you know, there's something to the idea that Trump as a villain is a, a interesting motivating force. At the same time, I do think that it's important that we not underestimate what people are capable of understanding, I guess is is how I would put it. You know, January 6th happens not just because of Trump, but because of a lot of broader systemic factors that all sort of are interlocking and combine to create this enormous disaster. And one of those really is law enforcement failures. Like, I really do think I don't want to underplay the extent of the FBI's catastrophic failure here. 
Um, I had a conversation with one former agent who described it as worse than 9-11. And the agency has just not had to account for that at all in any way. And so I do think that, you know, if what we're focused on is in part preventing this from happening again, part of that has to be some kind of, you know, examination of why the Bureau was so incapable of identifying the fact that far right uh, extremists and people who were drawn to this cause we're about to assemble on the Capitol. And I, I just haven't seen anything that tells me that Director Christopher Ray is taking that seriously, that there's any fire on Congress to address that issue. And so, you know, again, they the committee, they're working on a really compressed timescale. They do have to make really, really hard decisions. Uh, but I, I do think that, you know, if if the focus is Trump and only Trump, there is a serious concern on, on my part that you're going to throw out a lot of babies with the bathwater. Yeah. You know, I, I will say in this, as I think I've said on this podcast a hundred times at this point, like the hearings that the committee put together were clearly intended to demonstrate the dangers of election denialism to, frankly, independent and Republican leaning voters. That's why every witness was Republican. And so they had credibility. That's why they tried to bring in Republican office holders and underscore the threat to Republican voters and uh, other interests and individuals that Republicans strike closely to a lot of Republican and conservative values. To me, that's the public messaging element. If you are hacking and slashing what you've already said is going to be an over 1,000 page report because it doesn't leanly hit in a political message, I worry you're misunderstanding the game in the audience. You know, this report, I, I think, may not be the core political message it's setting out, but it does hit important lead audiences that actually do read reports and use reports as points of authority and come back to them time and time again. And so I worry when you say, well, this doesn't hit this political message that we think is the main driver, and that has been the main driver of the committee's political output thus far, and say that, but the final product in a format that is the least manageable in the first place for a public audience, and you've already guaranteed that's the format it's going to be in, it strikes me as a little misguided to use that as justification to say, oh, we're going to, we're going to pare this down. Now, that doesn't mean you don't want to make it more readable, more approachable within the realm of what's possible, a report that's big. And, and that may mean, okay, let's focus on the gold team stuff, the stuff that's politically salient, that has this sort of element. That has been the committee's approach. The committee seems united. And I don't think they're going to depart from that. But it doesn't mean you do away with the rest of it. You have to find ways to actually use that content and putting it available to the audiences, because there's diverse audiences interested in different parts of this, that can make use of it. A great example is the 9-11 Commission report. We had a giant report, and then we had several monographs that came out alongside of it separately, some of which have frankly proven as influential as the report itself. I, I particularly think of the terrorist financing monograph that has a ton of information as a resource for people working on this stuff for years and years and continues to be cited. I kind of suspect a lot of these other projects may be better suited for a monograph type product, right? Um, but you need to find out ways how they intersect in the public report. And the one thing I'll hit on, I really agree with, with Quinta on this, is that some of these are public failings that to really drive home the importance of changing them, public scrutiny is valuable, if not absolutely necessary. You know, bureaucracies, I'm a big defender of bureaucracy uh, and the deep state and, and you know, federal employees as a former one myself and maybe a future one uh, again in the future someday. Uh, you know, I think they do great work, but they're also very resistant to change. And a lot of the failings of the intelligence community and FBI around this were because of a lot of institutional biases and choices and decisions that often need a degree of real public pressure to change 
And those agencies are resistant to public pressure. Frankly, it can maybe be awkward for the Biden administration to push it in certain ways because of the political sensitivity here. Public scrutiny really matters for these things, particularly around those intel failures. And so I, I hesitate to say that that it's we can justify handing uh, you know the public limelight entirely over to Trump uh, while ignoring the important role it plays to shed light on those. That doesn't mean you can't you know shape the final product in a way that matches the narrative of your other public products, trying to feed that political message. But it does mean you need to take care that you bring all the valuable parts of what you're doing to light and package them in the way for the specific audiences they need to reach, even though those may not be, you know, the voting public. I think that we're violently agreeing. I I don't dismiss the research that was done in those other areas. I mean, I also am dying to see the money aspect of it because my big hashtag is follow the money. But I do think that there are they are very separate threads. I mean, they come together, but to package them all together is going to lose the thread, I think. You know, you're right. These The FBI uh, intelligence failures should be looked at maybe separately. You know, I think trying to put it all together in one message is a big ask. It's a big ask to try to get action steps across all these four different teams. You know, I think people can only, I'm not dismissing the intelligence of people where they can comprehend, but I do think that in order to get action steps, you you have to have digestible, you know, thesis, right? You can't have everything in one. And, And I do think to that end, it is important to edit the piece so that it gets to what is needed and what they really want to do. And then those other pieces, you know, continue on the thread of following the money, continue on the thread, looking at intelligence failures, um, you know, continue on uh, what was the, the other team uh, looking at militia groups. I mean, those are all really super important things. Um, and they can be in the report in smaller ways and then perhaps should be broadened into other committees and other investigations. I, I just think that we have to have action steps and action steps. You can't have 10,000 action steps. That's really, really clear. People respond better to really clear actions um, and points. Yeah, I think that the point about uh, that you raised about having monographs and then, you know, the Biden administration, yes, they're going to lose control of the House of Representatives. The president still has the ability to empower panels and commissions. And I think that with the research that has been done to then turn it over uh, for further investigation. My one worry with some of this is is to say, well, we're under a deadline. It all has to be done before the, the change of the House is that when you get to things about recommendations or you're getting to things about what are the intelligence failures uh, the FBI failures and the like, is that you then don't overreact uh, in a different direction. Because I think that we can maybe agree or, or disagree, but that in the knee-jerk reaction after 9-11, some of the things that we did that were supposed to fix problems that 9-11 uh, revealed existed, in some cases ended up being as bad or worse than than the, the, the putative cure. Uh, so we want to make sure uh, for example, that we're not empowering the FBI. And I can see where, you know, it's very easy to say, well, we want to focus on right-wing extremists, but we don't want to create something that then can be used against environmentalists, labor activists, uh, organizers, and, and, and the like. So I think that this is where we don't want to rush this. And if there is a sense that we can't get it all done in the report before January, get the parts out uh, that matter the most. But I still will come back to the fact it's not just about focusing on Trump. 
Uh, Trump is kind of the organizing center, but the, the integrity of elections, it's, is the critic, for me, is the critical thing of, of January 6th. Militia groups, police failures, failure of capital security, why didn't the National Guard come as summoned? Those are all important issues, but we lose the, we lose the credibility of our elections. You know, the, the, the damage that's done cannot be repaired. Uh, we're, the midterm elections, I think, uh, took us back from the brink. Remember, there was a lot of worry that uh, we would have disputed elections, we were going to have riots, we would have violence. Luckily, we've been spared, but we're not out of the woods. It's not a uh, where we can just sit back and breathe easy. Uh, and as we've seen in Arizona, we still have these lingering issues about certifying elections. And if we can't get that uh, fixed, and that's why I think the prioritizing that first, uh, because these other issues, they're important, but if our elections go down, none of the rest of this is going to matter. Well, speaking of following the money, we can also follow the over $3 billion uh, in assets of the Venezuelan government that were once locked up abroad and perhaps now no longer are. Uh, so there have been renewed talks recently between the Venezuelan government under Nicolas Maduro and the opposition bloc led by uh, Juan Guaido, whom the United States recognizes as the rightful leader of Venezuela, um, which has resulted in uh, agreement to sort of go to the UN and ask for the UN to take on this uh, missing $3 billion that have been frozen up abroad and use those uh, to disperse in Venezuela to address the country's really severe uh, humanitarian crisis. Uh, the economy is pretty much in, in free fall. Um, there's incredibly dire situations. Uh, enormous amount of Venezuelans have been fleeing the country, uh, some to Peru and Colombia, uh, some making the really incredibly dangerous journey across the Darien Gap in Panama to try to get to the United States. And as part of this, uh, these talks and this agreement between the government and the opposition, the Biden administration also announced that it was going to ease uh, sanctions imposed on Venezuela that will allow Chevron to resume oil production there, um, sort of easing up some of the really, really harsh sanctions that were placed on the Venezuelan government under the Trump administration. So there are a lot of aspects here. Um, the question of what this means for the humanitarian uh, situation and the economy in Venezuela, I think is real, as with uh, the, the fate of the Maduro regime. Speaking of disputed elections, one of the main things that the opposition wants to secure is a, a free and fair election. Um, I believe in, in 2024, the country has that coming up. But Scott, I wanted to go to you first as kind of our our sanctions watcher. Uh, what do you make of the decision to allow Chevron to resume oil production there? You know, it's definitely a significant step. I query whether, you know, to, to how significant it will be. It really depends on the trajectory it's headed in. Like, does this mean we're going to ease up sanctions that actually really restrict access to funds by the Maduro regime. Bear in mind, you know, the United States recognizes the Guaido regime. And that means Guaido has control or has been gradually asserting through litigation control over all the Venezuelan assets and state-owned enterprises that are located in the United States. And so to the extent to which, you know, these funds, not the funds from this, they're being directed into a separate uh, UN fund, but future funds might be 
routed through those avenues. They actually have substantial control over them um, and have their own vested interest in their in those assets. It, so it, it presents a much more complicated picture. But, and the real question is, well, what does this mean about where this is headed? This is a one-time exception to address humanitarian concerns that are extremely real, that have population flow consequences for the whole Western hemisphere, uh, many of which are beginning to be felt um, even in the United States. You know, is this a sign that the effort to kind of oust Maduro in favor of Guaido has ended? Frankly, it, it doesn't appear like it succeeded in the first place, um, really. Uh, that was a very conscious policy effort by the United States and a good part of the international community in 2019. And Maduro is still there and still in control of the country, um, yeah, even though, you know, instead of Venezuelan people have primarily suffered to that. Um, and it seems like the Biden administration has taken a stance to say, well, it's not clear the policy we inherited from the Trump administration, a very hard line stance, was really succeeding. We need more oil in the global market because of Ukraine, because of a lot of other factors. Uh, Venezuela can access that and may increase access to it if we open up uh, you know, different avenues of shipping. They have an interest in doing it. We have an interest in them doing it. Frankly, even Guaido may have an interest in doing it in terms of if, they, if he has control uh, or if there are ways to address the humanitarian concern for which he can take some credit. And I don't think the United States is doing any of this without Guaido at least kind of playing along and playing a role uh, as evidenced by these negotiations. And the real question becomes like, well, can we get to a point where we can incentivize people to actually let an actual election happen? Um, because Guaido's position uh, was always a temporary one. He's kind of an interim president president due to kind of default rules because of the illegitimacy of prior elections. And so at a certain point, the mandate that you see him as holding, that's the whole basis of his legitimacy of being recognized at the government, begins to fade if it hasn't begun to fade already. And the question then becomes, well, what happened to this next election? And maybe there are ways that you can use those elections to get yourself out of this very difficult quandary the Trump administration has put you in, where you recognize as the government somebody who is not in control of really any part of the country. And that seemed to be the trajectory they're aiming at. And I think that's a pretty sensible one. I was very skeptical of the recognition gambit the Trump administration pursued at the time, as I wrote an article on at the time for Lawfare and for better or for worse. I think it's been more or less vindicated that it was it was a big swing and a miss um, in terms of the objectives. And it's caused a lot more complications for Venezuelans and, and U.S. policy since then. But I'm curious what, what you all think, Tatiana and Nick. Well, just to riff first off of the piece you did for Lawfare, I mean, if look, if Guaido back in 2019 had done a version of Boris Yeltsin, had barricaded himself in the National Assembly, uh, attracted defectors from the military. The recognition gambit might have helped, uh, but he is largely, he's a he's been a president without a country uh, in the sense that he doesn't control, uh, he doesn't even have backing uh, from any defectors. There were a few defectors at the beginning, but the security services, the army, the state oil company, uh, all continue to take orders from Maduro. And as you said, really, Sitco in Houston uh, is really the only area where he has uh, a power base uh, from that area of control. I also think you highlighted, look, for the Biden administration, um, Venezuela intersects two doorstep issues which, which the administration has been grappling with and which the, is worried about political fallout. One, as you said, is, is migration throughout the Western Hemisphere. Uh, this has been a a real a sticking point uh, for the administration. They would like to be able to show some progress uh, in coping with it. And the other has been the energy price uh, and the fact that people uh, in the administration, in, in, the, in, the, in the president's, in the chief of staff's office are closely monitoring uh, those AAA reports every week about what the average price of gas is in various parts of the country. And when it goes down, they immediately get worked into presidential talking points, as we've seen 
uh, this past week with some of the president's statements. So uh, it's clear that there's a sense there that, as you said, the old policy isn't working. Uh, we maybe need to to explore different ways. And if we can get an agreement uh, that will clear the way for elections or an election process that we think is uh, reasonably free and fair, uh, we might move forward on that. Also important that you highlighted the, the, the question of Ukraine because the sanctions that the United States imposed on Venezuela redounded to Russia's benefit after 2019. Russia became the second and in some cases, the largest supplier of crude oil uh, from overseas sources to U.S. refiners. And even after Russia's uh, invasion started, U.S. refiners were still finding loopholes uh, to get Russian cargoes delivered uh, to replace the Venezuelan cargoes that aren't there. And so I think what we're seeing with the Chevron question uh, is this recognition that uh, if we are serious about closing these loopholes and for all the talk in the West uh, it is amazing how much Russian oil uh, is still finding its way to European and U.S. consumers, that uh, the lesser evil may be to let Chevron restart production and to be able to get the, uh, the Venezuelan heavy crude that our Louisiana and uh, Texas Galveston Coast refiners need uh, back into the mix. I don't know. Did you guys see the Wall Street Journal op-ed, though, about this? I mean, it was violently opposed. Like, I mean, it was like vociferously violently opposed to this, uh, at saying that Biden was selling his soul, you know, to to this dictator. And uh, why didn't he just open up U.S. land to more exploration and oil development? You know, why do you this isn't even going to make a dent. And so I wonder if that partisan divide is so huge, you know, as I understand that this is like a six month trial run. Can it really be sustainable with when Congress shifts in January? I, I just wonder about that. Yeah, I mean, Scott, I'd be curious for, for your thoughts. My sense is that Biden has a pretty free hand here in terms of what he can he can do as the executive. But I've actually been wondering about uh, what tack the administration might take on its specifically on its Venezuela and Cuba policy after the 2022 election. The Democratic Party has uh, in recent years as Venezuelan and Cuban immigrant communities, which always had a sort of a rightward turn because of the communist dictatorships in those countries, have they've moved even more to the right. And we saw, I mean, if you just look at the numbers from Miami-Dade County in Florida from the 2022 election, there is a really sharp right turn to the Republican Party. And it seems like that portion of the Latino vote is is not coming back, not suggesting that the Latino vote is a monolith, but but those specific communities, Venezuelan and Cuban immigrants. And so uh, that did make me wonder, you know, if if that actually in a weird way frees a Democratic admin presidential administration to try different things because it's essentially, it's no longer worth courting those voters. You know, those those voters in Miami-Dade are not going to come to you no matter what you do. Um, it doesn't matter how harsh you are on Maduro. Um, and so that that might actually free up some, some space in a way for the Biden administration to take a different approach, see, see you know, if, if something else works. I, Scott, I'm curious, first off, if that makes any sense to you at all, if I'm barking up the wrong tree, and, and second on the sort of the, the role of Congress question. Both are really good questions. I think really good points. From a legal perspective, the Biden administration has 
broad autonomy over this for the time being. Um, you know, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, that as far as I know, is the basis of all the sanctions uh, in relation to Venezuela. Very broad delegation of authority. Congress could repeal it, but they'd have to get both chambers and they'd have to override probably a probable veto um, by Biden or they'd have to you know tie it to the NDAA or something else that Biden can't veto. It, it'd be a long fight. And it's something that politically would be a really hard thing to move with just control of the House by Republicans. So I don't, I don't think there's anything they can do to legally stop them. Of course, they have a very strong oversight tool that might make it very painful to do things they don't like. Um, then the question becomes, well, you know, there are only so many trees that investigators in the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Judiciary Committee can bark up at one time. Is this going to make the cut of the list? But it might because there is some domestic political salience and there is a very kind of moralistic tone for these things that uh, I think that Wall Street Journal op-ed you referenced, Tatiana, really plays into that is easy for people to turn to in many cases to say, well, you are appeasing a dictator, um, even though, again, this is about handing money to a UN fund to ease humanitarian concerns. Um, you know, it's like putting much funds, any funds really in Maduro's pocket directly. You know, I think your point, Q, is a really good one, an interesting one here about what is the political salience of this and what does it mean if it's the the domestic, you know, constituency that cares most strongly about it begins to associate with one party. You would hope not too much of U.S. foreign policy is driven by like small political minorities in the United States and how they swing voting. Probably a chunk of it is, and maybe this part of it was motivated by that, although I think there actually was a lot of other things that led to the Trump administration's aggressive stance on Venezuela, not least John Bolton, who has an idiosyncratic kind of approach to these sorts of issues, and was driving uh, U.S. policy there at that time uh, in the Trump administration. But, you know, there's a danger here. Um, and this is something that Tatiana already, already got it, is that, yeah, it may give you more leeway while you're in office, but then your commitments only go so far. And if there is a rapprochement, the Biden administration does say, man, Guaido failed, or maybe even Maduro seems to win legitimately in the 2024 election, which I don't think we can rule out as a possibility, and you do want to re-engage, will the Maduro take the Biden administration seriously if they think a Trump, future Trump administration or future DeSantis administration is just going to come back and reverse them again because of these small political sort of minorities? It makes it very hard to craft a foreign policy. This is a dynamic we're already seeing really in play uh, in regards to Israel to some regards because the U.S.-Israeli relationship has become so politicized as we talked about a few weeks ago. That's tamped down a little bit because the Biden administration has a very, and President Biden himself has a very strong view of the U.S. Israeli relationship. Not all Democrats do, and it's weakening in the Democratic Party, uh, even as the Republican Party is building this weird relationship with Netanyahu. And this kind of be another example of that. And the more of these we have, the more unstable um, U.S. foreign policy becomes and how more difficult it is to make these sort of enduring commitments, particularly when the policy hinges so much on the control of just one election, meaning for the president, because Congress doesn't play a super proactive role in any of these policy making. But that's a challenge, you know, that just may be lurking across the horizon, and I'm not sure there's much we can do about it if that's really why people vote, how people vote, and what they are voting on on the basis of. Yeah, but I think your point about presidential commitments is is quite critical. I mean, we saw this that the uh, uh, Iran deal signed by President Obama, because it was an executive agreement, uh, was overturned by by the by President Trump, uh, and it does lay to questions about. Uh, you know, the, the commitments that the United States makes, are they commitments of the United States or are they commitments of specific presidents? Uh, and then how does that uh, play out? I think one thing that is slightly different is that, in you know, when the, you know, the last time you had, and this was regard to Cuba, a Democratic president really tightening up uh, on these issues, you know, back in 1996, uh, was when uh, the Clinton team thought, not without uh, good 
researched that they had a they could flip more of the traditional Cuban American vote in Miami Dade and New Jersey uh, into swing states that would matter, uh, and that it made good political sense. Uh, and then, of course, brokering the arrangements in the late '90s, which maybe is the model the, that that uh, Senator, uh, well, uh, President Biden, but he was back in the Senate then, uh, of uh, simultaneously keeping sanctions on Cuba, but then opening the way for American farmers and American pharmaceutical companies to be able to uh, to get around the embargo and then to you know open the door for de facto tourism uh, from the United States to Cuba, not just by Cuban Americans visiting family. Uh, and uh, perhaps Biden think the Biden team may think that they can replicate what the second term Clinton administration did uh, with an opening to Venezuela while at the same time being able to respond to the Wall Street Journal critique of, well, we're not dealing with a dictator, we're dealing with a humanitarian crisis, and we're trying to improve energy security for, for average Americans. Well, we will unfortunately have to leave the conversation there for now, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think over in the week to come until we are back in your podcatcher. Quinta, what do you have for us to share as an object lesson this week? I'm going to engage in some totally shameless self-promotion. Essay that I've been working on for a long time and that Scott has seen me standing in front of my office whiteboard, which had a, you know, insane, always sunny style, like map drawn out across it, uh, is finally out today. It is a piece in the Atlantic about Moore versus Harper, the independent state legislature theory case before the Supreme Court. There'll be oral arguments on uh, December 7th. And uh, I idiotically agreed to my lovely Atlantic editor's request that I read all of the amicus briefs in Morvey Harper, not thinking that there would be about 200 amicus briefs. So I, I have read the amicus briefs. I have cried blood, sweat, and tears. And Scott has has been very helpful uh, in, in helping me think through these issues and the pieces live. So uh, I, what I'm trying to do here is sort of give an overview, not only of the specific legal issues raised in the case, because there are many and boy, are they complicated uh, for a, a general audience, but also try to think through why it is that this case has caused so much consternation and, and frankly, confusion in terms of what a Supreme Court ruling endorsing this theory would actually do. Spoiler alert, it would not allow Trump to just straight up steal the 2024 election. So uh, yes, I will I will recommend my own work. I believe this is the first time I have done this and hopefully it will be the last. I don't I don't think I think you've done it one other time. Oh, but it's always worth it's always worth reading. <laughs> I save it for when it's really worth it. Exactly. I think it's it's a very good piece. I read it earlier today and it's it's a very useful digestion of a very complicated case. It does a good job treading both noting where anxiety is warranted and fencing off those areas where maybe anxiety is a little overblown in a very useful way. So I think I, I highly recommend reading it. I did not know you were actually asked to read all of the amicus briefs. I thought you were just yep. doing select ones. I would have told you I can name nine people who did not read those amicus briefs. <laughs> uh, so you could have passed on that. But that's okay. Uh, some of them, I'll tell you, there's always certain ones. You can tell which ones they read and which ones they don't. Um, but uh, but uh, a worthwhile read. And there definitely were some interesting tidbits you pulled from there. For my object lesson this week, 
there's a lot going on. I had a lovely holiday week. Uh, got to do some wonderful travel to the West Coast and saw some other things in the Bay Area. I got to do some fun reading. Uh, Willow is coming out on TV tomorrow, which I know people I've announced numerous times on this podcast I'm excited about and I will report back on. But I'm going to dip back into one of my favorite recurring themes. That's my renewed obsession with space and space travel because there's a phenomenal little documentary that I caught uh, during a quick talk junket across the American Southeast the other week. Uh, I had way more flights than I've had in the last several years and downloaded something to watch on them. It is called Last Exit Space. And it is a documentary directed by Rudolf Herzog, which if that name sounds familiar, it's because he is none other than the son of Werner Herzog, uh, one of my favorite documentarians slash weird directors slash weird actors, um, uh, particularly in The Mandalorian of late, I think was his last acting role, which is phenomenal. But I always enjoy his work. It's also Werner Herzog, and he's got this very unique dialect and way of speaking, and he narrates the entire documentary like this, and it's so worth watching. And it is a great hour and a half about all of the ways that colonizing space and space travel is super, super hard for a the human physical body and the environment we need to survive and the kind of daunting challenges it poses. And it ends on kind of a you know trite message that we need to protect the Earth before we just start hopping off and ruining other planets, which I agree with, but I think is a little predictable. But it's a lot of fun getting there in a very Herzogian, multi-generational way. Uh, so I strongly recommend folks check that out. I think it's on Discovery Channel or whatever it is, but I got it off, off Amazon Prime. So check that out if you want a little bit of a Werner Herzog uh, experience in a spaceward direction. Nick, what do you have for us this week? Uh, what I would recommend, uh, you can probably read it in English translation, uh, certainly, but uh, the Der Spiegel interview with Angela Merkel. Uh, you may think that sounds pretty esoteric, but it's a fascinating read because, again, and this ties back to you know our discussion about the January 6th committee and some of the other trends. You recall that only a few years ago, uh, Chancellor Merkel was described as the de facto leader of the free world. Uh, her praises were being sung. Uh, not only in Europe, but by many in the United States that said she was picking up the role uh, of uh, leading uh, the group of industrialized democracies. And then to uh, essentially reread her, to have her explain her policies and her run-up in the last years of her chancellorship uh, against what has happened, the dramatic change from COVID, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, and to really, it really raises this question of, have we entered a new era in international affairs? Are we going to look back and say whether it's 320 or uh, 222, whether it's the start of COVID or the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, that those are dates that are going to be as consequential as November 9th, 1989 or December 25th, 1991 were uh, for us uh, in defining the next 30 years afterwards. So definitely it's a, it's a good and interesting read. And the criticisms that she is receiving now, particularly from some people who until two years ago were her biggest cheerleaders, uh, is quite uh, quite fascinating. All right. Great recommendation. I'm looking forward to that. She's definitely an interesting uh, and underappreciated, at least on this side of the Atlantic figure. Tatiana, what do you have for us to bring us home? I'm going to, you know, I'm a big free speech advocate and this, and we have so much going on in that space. Julian Assange is still in the news. What the heck is happening with Twitter? I'm sorry. I know we have to go back to that. We always have to go back to that. But the article that I'm going to recommend this week, because I thought it just came out in New York Magazine, do you have a right not to be lied to? Which is a really interesting look at what free speech means 
And should we put some constraints on what is on Twitter, on what we discuss on social media, if it's a lie? And with Donald Trump just announcing his new candidacy and uh, yay, following him with his candidacy for presidency, I I think this question of do we have a right not to be lied to is a really interesting question and could turn us into a whole long discussion that we could maybe do over a drink sometime. All right. Well, we will have to save that for a drink sometime in the future because we are, for better or for worse, out of time. Because that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at RTL Security and be sure to leave a rating review wherever you might be listening. And while you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes and show notes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this very podcast, among other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Shinlin of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host Quinta and our special guests Nick and Tatiana, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.